Well, I would imagine, there's a lot of us in here, I would imagine in a room this size, we probably could tell a lot of stories about famous people we've met. You, you've probably out there, a lot of us have, have met one or more famous people. There's probably some kind of good story that goes along with it. I, I've had a chance to meet, I could throw in people like uh, George W. Bush. I've met Chuck Swindoll. Some of you might be familiar with him. I've met a lot of athletes, uh, Tommy Lazorda, Nolan Ryan, Michael Jordan. That was a weird story of meeting him. But uh, an interesting story was when we met, I say we, my wife and I, met Tommy Lazorda. We, we were at a game at the Houston Astrodome. That's where they played back then in 1985. And uh, we were at this game. They were not playing the Dodgers. They were playing another team. And I think it was probably a Thursday game. So I think Tommy, I can call him Tommy because we're so close. Uh, I think Tommy Lazorda was in town on a Thursday. They probably had the day off and he was probably scouting and getting ready for the upcoming weekend series. And so after the game, we were there with a, a friend of ours that worked for the Astros. And so he took us into the clubhouse and, and we got to meet a lot of the Astros. I met Nolan Ryan and his wife Ruth and Karen had a, a media guide, uh, this one right here. And uh, she's, getting, she's getting autographs from, from all these different Astros. And so we're on our way out and we're standing in front of an elevator when, when Tommy Lazorda comes down and, and he opens the door and I, I well, you would, hey, hey, Tommy. And uh, <laughs> so we talked for a few minutes and he, he signs the, the page right there. He says to Karen, you and the Dodgers are great. Now I'm just thinking, how did my wife get to be on the same level as the Dodgers to Tommy Lazorda? But uh, actually she was my girlfriend then. But uh, she's still my girlfriend. Uh, to Karen, you and the Dodgers are great. Tommy Lazorda. And, and then there's another name right here. Because while he was filling out this autograph, he says, now here's who you want to get to meet. And he, and he points to this guy next to him. And he says, you want to meet him. This is going to become one of the great Dodger pitchers. And so he starts talking to us about him. And Karen hands the book and he fills out his name. So we're walking away a few minutes later, and, and she says, did you know that guy? And I said, no, I've never heard of him. And I said, besides, I can't imagine anybody named Oral is going to be all that good. <laughs> well, Oral Hershiser, that was in the summer of 85. Oral Hershiser, three years later, in the summer of 88, became the first pitcher in Major League Baseball history, and nobody's done it since. In the same year, he won the Cy Young Award was named the MVP for the National League Championship Series and was the MVP for the World Series. No pitcher's ever done that. So I'm going to step out on a limb and say the name Oral didn't hurt him all that bad. It, it worked out pretty, pretty well for him. You know, we can tell stories like that. Maybe when we brushed into or had a chance to meet celebrities or, or great people. But you know, even after having done that, you know what I can't do? I can't introduce you to Oral. I mean, I can't walk up and say, uh, hey, this is Oral. Because Oral would look at me and go, who are you? You see, I've met him. I can say I've met him. I know things about him. But when, even when I tell that story, you're never under the illusion that, that Oral and I actually know each other, that, that we're friends. We, we don't. A, a brief meeting like that doesn't make that happen, nor does it give me the ability to introduce him. But you know what? There is somebody that does want to introduce you to somebody. And that's John. John wants to introduce you to Jesus Christ. And John does know Jesus. John knows him really, really well. As a matter of fact, John is often referred to as the best friend of Christ during his earthly ministry. 
Today, we're going to begin a study of the Gospel of John. Now, to study John is to study with someone. It's to spend time with someone who really, really knows Jesus. And he really, really wants you to know Jesus. John doesn't want you to leave this and say, Oh, I met Jesus once. No, John wants you to leave this time and to be able to say, I know Jesus Christ. John has one of the clearest purpose statements of, of any book in the Bible. I mean, he says, this is why I wrote this. And that purpose statement comes at the end of the book in John 20, verse 31. He says, these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And by believing, you may have life in His name. Now, in that verse, you will see two very key phrases. The first one is, that you may believe. The second one is, that you may have life. These two verses, or those two phrases, really are the dominant themes throughout the Gospel of John. As a matter of fact, if you were doing an outline of John. You would have two major sections, John 1 to 12 and John 13 to 21. John 1 to 12 you could entitle that you may believe. What you're going to find in that chapter is all the information you need, the evidence that you need to know who he is, what he's done and that you might believe in him. And then as you get into chapter 13 and beyond, you're going to see the life he has for you, the life he has for us to to know and to enjoy and to live in. Now, I've got about 17 sermons planned for us to study as we walk through the Gospel of John. Now, I'm going to do this a little bit differently than some of the others. About this time last year, we started a study of Ephesians, and we went through that verse by verse. We started in Ephesians 1, chapter 1, verse 1, and went through it verse by verse. This one we're going to do a little bit differently. John, in this Gospel, has three sets of seven. He's got seven witnesses. He's going to have seven witnesses, what their eyewitness account was to their life, to the life and their experience with Jesus Christ. He's also got seven I am statements, statements where Jesus said, I am, and then we're going to learn seven things he said he was, and they're what Jesus is for you. And then there are seven signs, seven signs that point to who he is, that give evidence to who he is. So this is the outline that we're going to follow as we walk through the Gospel of John. Now what I want to do today is kind of do a flyby. I want to just kind of get an overview. Today we're going to look at the person of John for a little bit and get to know this person we're going to be spending time with, this person who's going to be introducing us to Jesus. And then I want to spend time with the book, the, the Gospel of John, and get a little bit of an overview in that. Now, when we say that word John, there are five guys named John in the New Testament. The first one you probably know, John the Baptist. We know that name pretty well. John the Baptist had a very profound life and ministry. But as Jesus enters the scene, that's about the same time that John the Baptist is exiting as he's murdered by Herod. And then there's another John that I think you probably also know too. His name is John Mark. We usually refer to him by his second name, Mark. He gave us the gospel of Mark. Mark was not a disciple. He, he was not a, an eyewitness to the life of Christ. But he was a disciple, a follower under Peter. And as we read the gospel of Mark, those eyewitness accounts are probably coming from the disciple Peter. Then there's John of the Sanhedrin. Now, he was an enemy 
to Christianity. He was an enemy to the gospel. Another John is a father. We're introduced to John, the father of Peter and Andrew. You might remember there's 12 disciples that followed Jesus. There was two sets of brothers among those 12 disciples. There was Peter and Andrew, whose father was John. And then there was the two disciples that were brothers, James and the John we're talking about. And that's the fifth one, John the disciple. Now, when you go through the Gospel of John, you won't see a verse that says, this Gospel was written by the disciple John, just to make it clear which John we're talking about. It doesn't say that. You say, well, then how do we know that John wrote this Gospel? Well, one is it was always attributed to him. From the very early church on, everybody said this Gospel was written by John. Well, how did they know that? Because John gave it to them. And as it got out, everybody knew that it was John. If somebody else would have written it, that would have been the time to stand up and say, he didn't write that. If one of our pastors, say Mike Osborne, we had him up here last week celebrating his anniversary. If he wrote something to the church, and we all had that, and we, we studied it and, and knew all about it, and then I pop up six months later and say, hey, have y'all been enjoying this thing I wrote? This, I did this. He said, no, you didn't do this. We know Mike did that. Well, same with the Gospel of John. He wrote this, and as it went about, everybody knew that John wrote it. Now, while John does not directly refer to himself in the Gospel, he does tell a number of stories of which he's involved. And in those, he often refers to himself two ways. The other disciple. Never calls himself by name. He always says, the other disciple. Or he says, the disciple Jesus loved. That sounds kind of braggadocious, doesn't it? Hey, have you ever met me? I, I'm, I'm Jesus' favorite. I, I'm the disciple he loved. You want to touch me? <laughs> you know, the funny thing is, what John is so well known for is his humility. I don't think he's being braggadocious there. John, in his gospel, never refers to himself. He always just says some kind of general term. And three times in the gospel, John, he refers to himself as this disciple that Jesus loved. I think the reason he used that is kind of a nickname for him. It's how people knew him. People knew he was very close to Jesus and it was a way of identifying who the disciple was in that story without really directly pointing to himself. It's how people knew him. What we know from all four Gospels is there was 12 disciples, right? And among those 12, there was three that kind of made up an inner circle. The, the, the three disciples closest to Jesus. And that was Peter... James and John. James and John, of course, we know are brothers. Peter, James, and John. And when it refers to the other disciple or the disciple Jesus loved, we see Peter and James in other parts of the story. We know those are not a reference to him. So John's our man. John is the one who is an eyewitness to the life of Christ, who was there in some of those moments where there was only one or two other disciples. He is the one that wrote this book. Now, John is also somebody that I think had a deep interest in God even before Jesus got there. As a matter of fact, I think that's the way his family was. Of course, we know James is there with John following Christ, but James and John had a dad named Zebedee. Their mother's name was Salome. She is referred to in the New Testament as a follower of Jesus. And so you've got a, a mom and a dad that, that seemed focused, that seemed interested in spiritual things and, and discovering God and who he was and what he'd revealed about himself. And they'd obviously communicated that to their boys. And, and James and John were also followers of John the Baptist. 
They were disciples. They were learners under him trying to discover God in their lives. And when Jesus came on the scene, John the Baptist took James and John to him and said, I want you to meet the Lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world. At that moment, James and John left John the Baptist at his direction and began following Jesus. So we know James and John were intensely interested, intensely pursuing the Lord, and there he shows up in their life. Now John writes all of his books. You know, I don't know that we always think of, we think of Paul as a big writer of the New Testament, but John wrote the Gospel of John. He wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and he wrote the book of Revelation. And he wrote all of these. These were the last books written in the New Testament. I mean, that's not the order they're in in the New Testament, but chronologically speaking, they were the last ones to be written. Gospel of John is probably around 85 or 90 A.D. Revelation was written 95. So these are really near the very end of the century. And you start doing the math, we don't know the exact age, but, but John is probably somewhere in his 80s. This is 50, 60 years after the life of Christ. And if you think about it, again, you start thinking of everybody's age and adding up how long they live. John is probably one of the last eyewitnesses to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I mean, when I say last, I mean last one's walking on the earth. We know by this time all of the disciples have been martyred. All the others have been killed. Other, other friends and disciples were just by age were starting to pass off the scene. And so we're really coming to the very end of a generation. And John is the last one who was there. And I can almost see his, his students, his disciples, maybe his people there at his church in Ephesus say, John, this stuff you've been teaching us, you've got to start writing it down. I mean, you're, you know, your, your days are numbered. You can't be here much longer. And I'm sure that was a part of, and of course, the Holy Spirit inspiring and pushing John to give us the information he gives us. And when he gives us the Gospel of John, he gives us a Gospel that's a little bit different from the other three. If you're familiar, if you've done much in reading, you know that Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they're, they're a lot alike. They, they cover some of the same stories. They, they present Christ in some of the same ways. They have their own distinctions. They each communicate their own things, but they cover a lot of similar material. There's a lot of stuff covered in John that doesn't even show up in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. There's stuff that is consistent through Matthew, Mark, and Luke that's not in John. It's a little bit different. But now when I say different, I don't mean different in the sense that John was presenting contradictory information. I, I, don't, I don't mean different in that it, it presents a, a confusion or a problem with the other three. Let's think again about the ages. John's one of the last ones of the New Testament writing. The other three Gospels, they've been out on the scene. The, the other three Gospels have been circulating for 10, 20 plus years. So John already knows the church has that information. He, he knows what the church has been dealing with in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And so as he sets down to write, he doesn't need to re-communicate that information. John also has the advantage of watching this, the birth of this new church coming up. And, and he sees how they're growing and he thinks, you know, I imagine... You know what, they really need to know this about Christ's teachings. Or they need to know this about what Christ did. John also has a chance to see some of the false teaching. Boys, you've got to realize with truth, very possible false teaching comes right up along with it. 
And in John's day, when, when he sat down to write the Gospel of John, there was two very prominent false singings. One was by a group of people called the Docetists. You don't need to know that name. But the Docetists taught that Jesus did not have a physical body. That he didn't physically actually walk on the earth. He was just a spiritual presence that was here for a period of time. Another very well-known group, and they became well-known throughout history and gave us a lot of false things that have even turned into movies recently, and that's the Gnostics, the Gnostic writings. And the Gnostics believed that, that matter, the physical, that that was evil, and, and that salvation comes through you know, having mystical experiences with God. So you see, John knows some of the false teachings that are coming up. John knows what's already been out there among the church. He has all that as he sits down to write his gospel. And, and when, when you see that, you see with John that while he has a very clear purpose of showing us the spiritual world, introducing us to the spiritual realm, he wants us to see Jesus as the Son of God, the eternal Son of God. But at the same time, John brings in the physical. He brings in that human side of Jesus. It, John tells us Jesus got tired. John tells us, hey, Jesus said he was thirsty, said he was hungry. John shows us Jesus get angry. Now, I don't mean angry like woke up in a bad mood. I don't mean angry like he snapped at somebody. I mean angry at the wrong being done, a righteous anger. I would imagine Jesus could identify very easily a lot of the officers in our service today. I can't imagine with what y'all deal with day in and day out as you deal with a lot of wrong. You deal with a lot of the evil. You deal with a lot of the injustice. As you're bombarded with that, you can get angry. I think John shows us that, that kind of anger that Jesus expressed. You know what John also shows us? Jesus cried. As Jesus went to a funeral, he had friends outside of the disciples. Some of his very close friends was a brother and two sisters, Lazarus and Mary and Martha. And Lazarus died. And Jesus went to that funeral, and, and you know the story. Jesus is going to raise him. Going to raise him from the dead. But as he approaches that scene and he, and he deals with Mary and Martha, he begins to cry. I think that story is so important to our lives. I don't know how many times I've said to somebody, it's not a lack of faith to hurt it's not a lack of faith to feel a sense of loss and, and to grieve. That doesn't mean we, we don't believe in God. Jesus felt that loss. He knew what was going to happen. He trusted, obviously, in God, and yet he felt that. So Jesus, John shows us this very human side to the deity, this human side to the Son of God. So John has got, John takes the events of Jesus' life, takes the teachings of Jesus' life, and presents to us the eternal Son of God who came in flesh, real flesh, a real human. The eternal Son of God that was born, but born to die as God's sacrifice for human sin. John introduces us to the person of Jesus Christ. And you know, John does that in a way that's very characteristic of this book. He does it in a way that's very simple. John is both simple and profound. John is maybe one of the simplest books written in all the Bible. In its vocabulary, in its writing style, in its presentation, it's very simple, and yet it's very profound. 
I like how one commentator described this book. His name's Mark Bailey, who, by the way, is going to be a guest speaker in this church in September. He's talked about in your 33-week book. But in his commentary, he says of the Gospel of John that this book, that it's amazingly clear and attractive to the beginning student. But at the very same time, it is awesomely deep to the seasoned scholar. Many of you know John is the first place you're going to send a new believer. Why? Because they're so clearly and easily going to be introduced, get to know their Savior. Now, John does not, like Matthew, Mark, and Luke, does not give us a chronological flow to his book. He's not like Matthew, Mark, and Luke. He's not going now on day one when Jesus was born. On, on month eight, on year two, that's not how John walks through his gospel. He's more thematic. He, he deals a lot with the father-son relationship between God and Jesus. He deals a lot. One of his big themes is eternal judgment, eternal life. John deals a lot with Jesus' personal teaching to you and to me. Whereas Matthew, Mark, and Luke show us Jesus teaching a lot to the masses, John really focuses on when Jesus was talking to that twelve, or when Jesus was talking to that three. As a matter of fact, when you read chapters 13 through 17 of John, you kind of get a feel, I feel like you do, a sense of what, of what Jesus might talk to you about if the two of you were out to lunch this week. As a matter of fact, I encourage you to do that. Go to lunch with Christ this week. Get a brown bag, get off by yourself, open up your Bible, and read John 13 through 17. And I really think you'd get pretty close to what Jesus would sit down and talk with you about over lunch. As a matter of fact, you talk about that one-on-one that -on -one in the chronology of John. It's amazing how little time John actually covers. I mean, when you say that we've got 21 chapters here that are presenting to us the life of Christ... It really covers very little time. Chapter 13, almost all the way to the end of chapter 18, and this is over 25% of the book, all takes place on one night. Everything from 13.1 to about halfway, three-fourths of the way through 18, is all the night before the crucifixion. It all takes place on Thursday night. As a matter of fact, chapters 11 through 21, over half the book, all of that takes place in the last week of the life of Christ. Now, why, why would that be? Well, Jesus knew what was coming. When, when he entered that week, he knew what was going to happen Friday. And he got very intense with his followers about who he was, why he was here, what it looked like to follow him, to be in a relationship with him. And that's what John, who was there, and who heard that and saw that intensity on his face and how much he wanted, not just the masses, but that one-on-one -on -one follower to know. And that's what John wanted to communicate to you and I. Another key theme in the book of John is belief. John is all about belief. As a matter of fact, in just 21 chapters, John is going to use the word believe 95 times. John wants you to believe. You might be thinking, what difference does it make to John whether I believe or not? Oh, folks, you want to know something? If you really know Jesus, you really care that other people do. They go hand in hand. 
to know Jesus is to care that others do. And John knows Jesus. And he wants you to believe because he wants you to be a child of God. John chapter 1, verse 12. John wants you to believe so that you can have eternal life. John 3, 16. John wants you to believe because he wants you to know personally, relationally, God. John 17, 3. Now that word believe, it's a, it's a tricky word. That word believe can be something very shallow and it can be something very profound. And I think that's true in a religious sense. We can say, I believe, and it may mean nothing. Now, you know what I'm talking about. I mean, I, I believe, I believe with all my heart. I've seen it on a map. I believe all the reports. I believe the news. I believe the nation of Sri Lanka exists. And that will have zero bearing on my life this week. I believe it. Believe with all my heart. I believe with all my heart. I believe all the evidence shows it. I believe Abraham Lincoln existed. I have no questions of that. Do you believe in Abraham? I absolutely believe in Abraham Lincoln. And that will probably have no effect on my life in this coming. I won't make a, a probably a single decision based on that belief. I, I won't go to the right or the left based on that. I, mean, I believe it. But it doesn't mean that much to me. Folks, that's not the belief. That, that when you study that word in the New Testament Greek, that's not what that word means. The belief that John is calling us to, presenting to us, is not a belief. Ah, yeah, I believe, I believe in Jesus. Sure, I'm, I'm American. Got to believe in something. That's not the belief John's talking about. The belief John is talking about, when I say, I believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God, raised from the dead, that is a belief that is to touch Every aspect of my life. It touches who I am, where I'm going, what I'm doing, my time, my priorities, my values. It touches everything about who I am. That's what the word believe means when John talks about it. Well, when you talk about belief, guess what else is a major thing? Our response. Our response to that belief. You know, that's really ultimately when we stand before God, how we're defined. And that's what the Gospel of John shows us. It shows us people responding to Jesus. And it only shows two responses. Never a middle ground, never an in process, never on the way. It shows us two responses. Belief, which always results in eternal life. And unbelief, and by the way, the Gospel of John shows us unbelief that is synonymous with religious belief. It shows us unbelief that leaves us under the condemnation of God. As a matter of fact, when we go to, we see both of these themes when we go to one of the most well-known verses in all the book of John. Maybe, maybe the most well-known verse in all the Bible. John 3.16. Would you turn there with me if you have a Bible with you? If you don't, we've got Bibles in front of you in the chairs, in some of the, in some of the chairs. If you see one, you kind of point to it, somebody will hand it to you. We're going to be here just briefly, but I want us to see this. John chapter 3, verse 16. There are actually words that go with this. Some of us only seen that at a football game behind the end zone. John 3, 16. Look what this says. For God loved the world in this way. He gave His one and only Son so that everyone who believes in Him will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world that He might condemn the world, but that the world might be saved. Saved from what? Saved from sin. 
We can't save ourselves from that. That we might be saved through Him. Anyone who believes in Him is not condemned. Period. End of story. You're forgiven. The guilt's gone. There will be no condemnation in your life. But anyone who does not believe or anyone who remains stuck in just a simple religious, shallow religious belief, if you remain there, that person's already condemned because he has not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. Look at one last verse. Look at how John concludes chapter 3. Look at verse 36. Very simple. The one who believes in the Son has eternal life. Isn't it interesting how often we talk about how confusing the Bible is, how hard the Bible is to understand? That's not hard to understand, is it? Uh, we get caught up sometimes in what's hard to understand. There's a lot there that's very simple to understand. The one who believes in the Son has, possesses eternal life. But the one who refuses to believe in the Son will not see life. Instead, the wrath of God remains on him. John wants you to know Jesus that will move you from unbelief and the wrath of God to belief and to life and life eternal. Colonial Heights Baptist wants you to know that Jesus. That's why we're here. That's what we do. We're, we're doing this sermon series for a year to really get focused on introducing Jesus, to remind ourselves that's what our lives individually, that's what our lives as a whole is all about. But you know, that's true no matter what we're doing. No matter what the sermon series is, whether it's a, a, a music selection or a worship service or it's something they're doing in the children's program, Awana, or it's the youth getting ready to get on the bus and, and go to a beach retreat, everything we're about is introducing, meeting, and getting to know our Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus is why we're here. Jesus is why we built. Jesus is all we have to offer. I think it's going to be a great study as we walk through John. I wonder if John was a, an officer wannabe. I think he might have been. The way he presented that book, seven signs. You know what he's given? Evidence. What do officers do when they go to the, to the scene? They collect evidence. What does the evidence point to? What does the evidence say? John's going to give us seven pieces of evidence about who Jesus Christ is and what he did in history. John's going to introduce us to seven witnesses. I've been on the crime scenes, and they, they take witness. I remember the first time I went out as a chaplain. It was the middle of the night, 2 in the morning, and somebody started telling me something, and I was trying to get the officer. They're telling me stuff. I'm just here to pray. <laughs> he said, start writing it down. I don't want to write it down. But you've got to get everything. You've got to hear what the witnesses are saying. You know what? John wants us to hear the voice of seven eyewitnesses. Eyewitnesses count in a court of law. John's going to give us those seven I am statements. Boy, it's amazing. Sometimes we, we leave God up there high and lofty in a way. You, you can't touch him. You can't reach him. He, he's probably angry at you. No, Jesus said, hey, I'm God and I am. And it's what he wants to be for you. Not how he want to push you away. Well, it's going to be a great study as we go through this. But you know, as we study each one of these things, it's never going to get very far from this simple statement. Do you believe? With belief comes eternal life. With unbelief, we remain under the wrath of God. Colonial Heights Baptist wants you to meet and to know Jesus. He is life. 
He's life eternal. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning, and I, and I hope, <laughs> I hope now, Lord, with a sense of anticipation and excitement about the weeks ahead that will carry us through the rest of this year as we open up this great gospel of John and begin to study not what John made up, but what you revealed to him. God, I pray that, that as we round the corner on November, that we know Jesus like we've never known him before that we more and more and more will know Him as our best friend in life. God, open up the words that You gave, John. Give us a heart and a mind to study and to understand. God, give us the, the time and the opportunity to arrange our schedule to be here each week to see what You have to say, what Your Word communicates. Father, I also pray today, right now, that your Holy Spirit would move and work in each and every life in this room to answer that very important question, do I believe? Is my belief a real belief that affects everything about who I am and what I do? Or, or do I not yet believe? Or am I kind of stuck in a, a shallow religious belief that still has no impact on my life? God, would you through your Holy Spirit right now, give us the ability to honestly ask ourselves that question. And God, may we hear your voice tell us where we are. And Lord, for that person in this room right now who's hearing you say, you've got no belief. You've got a shallow religious belief that means nothing. God, as they hear that voice, may they realize it doesn't come from an angry God comes from a God who loves them and wants them to know His Son and what He did for them on the cross so that they could become Your child and no longer be condemned. God, we, we sang about it a moment ago. Lord, speak, Lord, speak, Lord. God, right now, may You speak. Speak in each heart and life in this room right now. May we have the courage and the faith to hear and to listen. It's in the name of Jesus Christ that we pray this. Amen.